This is a special presentation of the Islamic History Podcast. Welcome to the Islamic History Podcast from Islamic Learning Materials. This is where we take the history of Islam, peel back the layers and add a little bit of spices and serve it up in tiny little bite-sized pieces. And here's the man who's going to do all the cooking, Mutaki Ismail. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. As you heard, this is a pretty special presentation because we are discussing the story of Al-Ifq, the slander against Aisha radiallahu anha. Now, I have to apologize. This episode has been delayed by three weeks and I got some good justification for it. At least I hope so. Uh, my computer broke down and it took me, took me two weeks to get a uh, new computer, a replacement computer. And, uh, then I had to give a khutbah last week. Well, really, today is Saturday. So really just yesterday, Friday, I had to give a khutbah. So I had to take a week off to prepare for that. And all those things just kind of slow things down. But uh, this this um, podcast, this episode really should have been ready way back in September. Just things just happened, mashallah. Well, brothers and sisters, please stay tuned after the show for some more insights into this episode, some discussion about what's coming up soon. And I want to ask you to uh, continue or to please, if you're not doing it, to please support the, this podcast. Uh, you can do so at patreon.com slash Islamic history. Make a monthly donation, monthly uh, uh, sponsorship. There are many different levels. Also, the show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash ifk, I-F-K, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash ifk. Uh, so that's pretty much it. I just wanted to give you a quick introduction. So let's go ahead and get into the show about the story of the ifk, the slander against Aisha. Introduction The story of the scandal, also known as Al-Ifq, is one of the most popular stories of Prophet Muhammad's life, peace be upon him. This story shows how some of the most basic human faults can bring harm and division to any community. The essence of the story is simple and straightforward. Aisha, one of the prophet's wives, was rumored to have had an extramarital affair with another man. The rumors became so prevalent, it seems not even the prophet was certain of the truth. Eventually, Aisha was declared innocent by divine revelation and what was a disgraceful calumny became an eternal lesson for the Muslim world. The verses from the Quran related to this story formed a part of the hood or legislated punishment in Islamic Sharia. But there's more to this story than false accusations and divine vindication. There are battles and arguments and lots of finger-pointing. Amidst the lies and treachery of this scandal, there is also hope and redemption. This story proves the justice that Islam seeks for all people. It also illustrates the importance of preserving the honor and reputation of our brothers and sisters. We live in an age when most people have no problem humiliating and spreading gossip about celebrities, politicians, and even other Muslims. This story is evidence that while we must always seek justice, we also have a duty to rise above our desire for salacious gossip and human drama. Allah. Allah. 
Part 1. Banu Mustalik When the hypocrites come to you, they say, We testify that you are the messenger of Allah. Allah knows you are his messenger, and Allah testifies that the hypocrites are liars. Quran, chapter 63, verse 1. Sha'aban, 6AH. A Preemptive Strike. The slander against Aisha begins with one man's decision. That man was Hadith ibn Abu Dirar, the Sharif or leader of Banu Mustalik. Banu Mustalik was allied with the Quraysh of Mecca who were still pagan and avowed enemies of Prophet Muhammad. Ten months after the Muslim victory at the Battle of the Trench, Hadith ibn Abu Dirar decided to lead his own invasion of Medina. The Battle of the Trench had been a turning point for the Muslims. Abu Sufyan, the de facto leader of the Quraysh, organized an alliance of pagan tribes to attack Medina. His combined forces numbered almost 10,000 men. Medina, with only 1,500 soldiers, did not stand a chance. During a war council, the Persian companion Salman al-Farisi suggested digging a trench around the vulnerable parts of Medina. The Muslims dug the trench and, sure enough, when the primitive pagan army arrived, they could not find a way across. The alliance camped outside Medina for several weeks before falling apart. Even Abu Sufyan and the Quraysh eventually gave up and returned to Mecca. This stunning victory for the Muslims resulted in few deaths and proved they were a force to be reckoned with in the Arabian Peninsula. It also changed the Prophet's philosophy on warfare. He migrated to Medina five years before the trench, hoping to preach and teach Islam in peace. But in that time, the Quraysh had already attempted two invasions of Medina. The Prophet would not allow a third attempt. After the trench, he became more proactive in protecting his community. So, when he learned Hadith ibn Dirad was planning to attack Medina, the Prophet was not going to wait for him. He led an army to strike a preemptive blow against Banu Mustalik. The Muslims mobilized fast. They had to cross nearly 200 miles of open desert and strike before Hadith could organize his defenses. The Prophet left his adopted son, Zayd ibn Haditha, in charge of Medina and marched out with 700 men. Omar ibn Khattab led the advance guard. Abu Bakr carried the standard or banner flag for the Muhajirun, while Sa'ad ibn Ubadah carried the standard for the Ansar. It was the Prophet's practice to bring one of his wives on every expedition. His wives would choose from among themselves by drawing lots, and in this instance, Aisha won. Aisha rode in a howdah, a seat enclosed on all sides by a canopy, which the men would hoist on and off her camel. She was young at the time and was out of sight for most of the journey. The Prophet departed Medina with 700 men, including a significant contingent of hypocrites. The Munafiqun, or hypocrites, were men and women who were Muslim by name but did not believe in Prophet Muhammad's mission. The most prominent hypocrite was Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Solul, who was a leading member of the Khazraj tribe in Medina. Abdullah ibn Ubay once wielded considerable influence. Before the arrival of Prophet Muhammad, the two tribes of Medina, Banu Aus and Banu Khazraj, were considering making him their king. Abdullah ibn Ubay also had strong connections with the Jewish tribes living in Medina. 
But after Prophet Muhammad migrated there, his popularity waned and he was limited to making subtle insults and instigating petty rivalries. The Spring of Muraisi When Hadith ibn Darir heard the Muslims were heading his way, he sent a scout to keep track of their movements. The Muslims captured and interrogated the scout. After learning what they needed, Ali ibn Abi Talib offered him the opportunity to accept Islam. When the scout refused, he was executed. Prophet Muhammad hoped for a peaceful resolution. He sent Umar ibn Khattab to Hadith ibn Darir with the same offer of accepting Islam. Hadith rebuffed the Prophet's entreaties and the Muslims prepared for battle. Banu Mustalik never stood a real chance. Their battles against the Quraysh had turned the Muslims into a disciplined fighting force. The Muslims took Banu Mustalik by surprise, attacking them while they were watering their flock at a local spring called Al-Muraisi. The Muslims surrounded the men of Banu Mustalik and there was a brief exchange of arrows before they attacked each other with swords. Banu Mustalik held out for two nights before Hadith ibn Darir surrendered. This was another victory for the Muslims with few casualties. Ten men from Banu Mustalik were killed and only one Muslim. The one Muslim casualty was a man named Hisham ibn Subaba from Banu Kalb. He was killed by another Muslim who mistook him for one of the enemy. Several months later, Hisham's brother came to Medina and requested blood money for the accidental death. The Prophet paid the blood money to the dead man's brother who then pretended to accept Islam. The man stayed in Medina a few more days, killed his brother's killer, and then fled back to Mecca. Among the captives of the Battle of Banu Mustalik was Juwadia, the daughter of Hadith ibn Darir. Aisha described her as being very beautiful and admitted to feeling some jealousy when the Prophet took an interest in her. Soon after her capture, Juwadia inquired about her ransom. Some reports suggest her father negotiated her ransom, but the strongest evidence indicates she took the initiative. Juwadia went to the Prophet and requested help in obtaining the money to buy her freedom. The Prophet offered to pay her ransom if she married him. Juwadia, seeing an opportunity to help her people, accepted his proposal and added some conditions of her own. She requested the release of half the captives from her tribe as well as the return of their goods. When the Prophet accepted her terms, the freed captives voluntarily accepted Islam. In one stroke, Juwadia bought freedom to hundreds of people, forged an alliance between two former enemies, and increased the Muslim influence in the area. Even Aisha, despite her jealousy, had to acknowledge the benefits Juwadia brought to the Muslims. The Hypocrites After the battle, the Muslims gathered by the spring of Muraisi to get water for the long journey back to Medina. Hundreds of men and animals competed for water from the small spring leading to jostling and shoving. A fight broke out between Omar's servant, Jahja, and an Ansar named Sinan. As their argument heated up, they called for their respective groups. O Muhajirun, yelled Jahja. O Ansar, yelled Sinan. Several men from each side rushed over, ready to fight each other. But Prophet Muhammad intervened and eased the tensions before the situation got worse. Abdullah ibn Ubay was not ready to let things go. Since the Muhajirun accepted Islam first, endured religious persecution in Mecca, and were mostly from the same tribe as Prophet Muhammad, they held a higher rank than the Ansar. 
But the Ansar outnumbered the Muhajirun several times over. The Muhajirun were guests in the Ansar city, and the Ansar has saved the Muhajirun from that persecution in Mecca. For a Muhajir to strike an Ansar was the ultimate insult to Abdullah ibn Ubay. Has this really happened? He shouted at a group of men from his clan. They have tried to outrank and outnumber us in our own lands. The old saying is true. Fatten your dog and he will eventually eat you. By Allah, when we get back to Medina, the honorable will drive out the dishonorable. A young man named Zayd ibn Arkam heard Abdullah's speech. Zayd belonged to the same clan as Abdullah ibn Ubay, but his loyalty was with Prophet Muhammad. When Zayd ibn Arkam reported Abdullah's speech, Prophet Muhammad convened a meeting of the leading Muslims. Omar ibn al-Khattab was incensed. Messenger of Allah, he said, give the order to strike off this hypocrite's head. Omar, the prophet responded, what will happen if people start saying that Muhammad kills his companions? Abdullah ibn Ubay denied the accusations. Perhaps, he argued, Zayd ibn Arkam misunderstood him. The prophet decided to leave the matter alone and return to Medina. Perhaps the rigors of travel would soothe the tensions. The Muslims departed later that day and marched into the evening. They continued marching throughout the night and until the dawn, only stopping to perform prayers. The Prophet did not permit a halt until sunrise. By then, the Muslims were too exhausted to talk about the previous day's events and quickly fell asleep, just like the Prophet planned. Later that evening, the Messenger of Allah called young Zayd ibn Arkam and told him that Allah had confirmed his ears. He recited some verses that had just been revealed. هم الذين يقولون لا تنفقوا على من عند رسول الله حتى ينفضوا ولله خزائن السماوات والأرض ولكن المنافقين لا يفقهون يقولون لئن رجعنا إلى المدينة ليخرجن الأعز منها الأذل ولله العزة ولرسوله وللمؤمنين ولكن المنافقين لا يعلمون And when it is said to them, Come, the Messenger of Allah will ask forgiveness for you, they turn their heads aside and you see them evading while they are arrogant. It is all the same for them whether you ask forgiveness for them or do not ask forgiveness for them. Never will Allah forgive them. Indeed, Allah does not guide the defiantly disobedient people. They are the ones who say, Do not spend on those who are with the Messenger of Allah until they disband. And to Allah belongs the treasures of the heavens and the earth, but the hypocrites do not understand. They say, If we return to Medina, the honorable will surely expel from it the dishonorable. And to Allah belongs the honor, and to his messenger, and to the believers, but the hypocrites do not know. A strong wind greeted the Muslims when they resumed their journey. 
Some of them thought it was a sign of Allah's displeasure with their bickering. The Prophet assured them they had nothing to worry about. The wind was just a sign of a powerful man who had recently died. Nonetheless, there was no more arguing for the rest of the trip. Part 2. The Slander Woe to every slanderer, backbiter. Quran, chapter 104, verse 1. The next night, while they halted for a short rest, Aisha, the prophet's wife, went off to find a secluded area to relieve herself. When she returned to the group, she realized her necklace of onyx beads were broken. She retraced her steps to find the missing beads as the necklace had been a gift from her sister and it meant a lot to her. No one had seen her go off the second time and everyone assumed she was still in her howdah. When it was time to depart, the men lifted the howdah onto her camel. Aisha was very light and they never noticed the difference in weight. By the time Aisha returned to the campsite, the army had left. She decided to say put knowing they would eventually come back for her. Soon after, a Sahaba named Safwan ibn Mu'attal found her. Safwan's duty was to follow behind the army and collect anything left behind. Usually this was tools or money or trinkets. He never expected to find the Prophet's wife. Safwan recognized Aisha as this was before she covered her face with a veil. He asked her why she was left behind, but she did not answer. So he turned his back and allowed Aisha to mount his camel. Then they set out with Aisha riding and Safwan walking. They were only a day's march from Medina and soon caught up with the main group. Everyone was relieved that Aisha had been found and most did not think much of it. The army returned to Medina the next day to learn a wealthy Jewish man named Rafia ibn Zaid, one of the main supporters of the hypocrites, had died while they were away. This confirmed what the prophet had said about the strong winds. Meanwhile, the chief of the hypocrites, Abdullah ibn Obey, was telling everyone about Aisha's brief disappearance and her convenient discovery by Safwan ibn Mu'attal. These comments started a wave of gossip that soon took a life of their own. Before long, the entire city was buzzing with scandalous stories. Most of the Muslims dismissed these tales as gossip and paid no attention to them. Aisha was unaware of the rumors. She had taken sick after returning to Medina and was confined to her room. Her mother attended her but never mentioned the rumors. Aisha did notice a change in her husband's demeanor. Prophet Muhammad, usually kind and attentive to her needs, had grown distant and cold. Aisha heard him come by and ask her mother about her condition, but he never actually came in to see her. Hurt and confused by the Prophet's behavior, Aisha asked and received permission to stay with her parents while she recuperated. Two weeks later, Aisha had recovered from her illness. However, she was still unaware of the gossip that was going around. By now, everyone was talking about it. The city had divided into two camps, those that believed the rumors and those that rejected them. There were a few people at the center of the chaos. Of course, there was Abdullah ibn Obey, the primary instigator. Another was the Arab poet Hassan ibn Thabit. He
He was from the Banu Khazraj and had once written poetry for the king of the Ghassanids, a Christian Arab tribe. There was also Mistah ibn Uthatha. Mistah was a muhajidun and veteran of the Battle of Badr. His cousin, Ubaidah ibn al-Hadith, had been killed at Badr. Finally, there was Hamna bint Jash. Her sister, Zainab bint Jash, was also married to Prophet Muhammad. Her brother, uncle, and husband were all killed during the Battle of Uhud. There is a famous story detailing Hamna's reaction to their deaths. When she was informed of her brother and uncle's fates, she responded with, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'un. From Allah we come, and to him is our return. But when she learned of her husband's death, she lost her composure and cried out in anguish. It was not long before Aisha learned about the rumors also. One night, Aisha was going to the fields with Umm Mistah, the mother of Mistah ibn Uthatha. The Arabs of Medina did not like outhouses and considered them uncivilized. Instead, the women went into the fields surrounding Medina to relieve themselves. While walking, Umm Mistah tripped over the hem of her dress and cursed her son in frustration. Aisha was shocked to hear her curse her own son, who was also a veteran of the Battle of Badr. What a terrible thing to say about a muhajidun who fought at Badr, Aisha replied. Daughter of Abu Bakr, haven't you heard what he says about you? Umm Mistah then proceeded to tell her about the rumors that were circulating around town. Aisha could not believe her ears. Is this really true? she asked. By Allah, it is, answered Umm Mistah. Aisha was so upset she could not finish her business in the fields. She ran back to Medina crying with a burning pain in her stomach. Now it all made sense to her. Now she understood why the Prophet had been so cold. Now she understood why he remained distant after she healed. Aisha went to her mother first. May Allah forgive you. You heard these rumors the people were spreading about me, yet you said nothing to me. Her mother tried to console her. Don't worry about these things. Whenever a beautiful woman is married to a man who loves her, and there are other wives involved, there is always gossip. And eventually, the people outside the home gossip as well. The rumors were now so rampant, even the prophet could no longer ignore them. The same day, he took the pulpit in the masjid and scolded the people for their gossip. O people, why are some men hurting me about my family and spreading these lies about them? They are spreading lies about a man whom I only know good about and who has never entered my house without me being there. Many of the Muslims were also tired of the rumors. One of the Ansar, a man named Usaid ibn Hudair from Banu Aus, stood up. Messenger of Allah, he declared, if they belong to Banu Aus, we will take care of them for you. And if they belong to our brothers, Banu Khazraj, just say the word. By Allah, they deserve to have their heads cut off. Sa'ad ibn Ubada, one of the Khazraj leaders, jumped up. You are a liar, he shouted at Usaid. By Allah, no one's head is getting cut off. You are only saying this because you know these men are from Banu Khazraj. If they were from your tribe, you would never say that. You are a liar, Usaid retorted. You are a hypocrite defending the hypocrites. Men from both tribes are on their feet arguing and ready for a fight. Seeing another split about to erupt in his people, Prophet Muhammad got down from the pulpit and eased himself between the two groups. 
He urged them to calm down, and the men eventually dispersed without any further damage. The prophet knew he had to get to the bottom of these rumors before they split both his family and his community. Since this was a personal matter, he consulted with two men from his household. He asked Ali ibn Abi Talib and Osama ibn Zayd their opinions on the situation. Usama, the son of Zayd ibn Haritha, whom the Prophet raised as a son, dismissed the rumors. Messenger of Allah, Usama said, your wives are your family and we know nothing but good about them. Ali, however, neither accepted nor rejected the rumors. Messenger of Allah, there are many women and you can easily find another one, he said. Ask the slave girl, she will tell you the truth. Ali's comments have sparked debate for centuries about the relationship between him and Aisha. Perhaps this was an indication of the conflict they would have with each other many years later. The Prophet took Ali's advice and called a young woman named Barira. Barira had once been a slave, but Aisha had helped buy her freedom. Now, Barira served Aisha not as a slave, but as a dutiful servant. By Allah, said Barira when they asked her about Aisha, I know nothing but good about her. Her only fault is that when I asked her to watch my dough, she fell asleep while the sheep came to eat it. Encouraged by this testimony, the Prophet decided it was time to ask Aisha herself. He went to Abu Bakr's house where Aisha was being consoled by her mother and another woman from the Ansar. All three women were in tears. Aisha, he said, as you know, the people have been saying things. Fear Allah, and if you have committed an evil act, then repent to Allah, for he accepts the repentance of his servants. Aisha stopped crying. She looked to her parents and said, Won't you say something to him? The rumors had taken a great toll on Aisha's parents. Though they stood by her throughout the entire ordeal, they were always afraid she might be found guilty. Abu Bakr and Prophet Muhammad had been best friends for years. These accusations could ruin their friendship. We don't know what to say, her parents replied. Aisha must have felt all alone in this matter. Half the city suspected she was guilty, her husband was not even certain of the truth, and her parents could not help her. All she could do was rely on Allah. She turned to face Prophet Muhammad. By Allah, I will never repent for this thing you speak of. By Allah, if I confess to these rumors just so that you can believe me, even though Allah knows I'm innocent, I will be telling a lie. And if I deny what you're saying, you will not believe me. Aisha wanted to quote a verse from the Quran describing Jacob's reaction when his sons told him Joseph had been eaten by a wolf. But in her emotional state, she could not remember Jacob's name. Like Yusuf's father said, she finally responded, patience is most fitting. Allah's help is to be sought in what you describe. Aisha turned away from the prophet, refusing to look at him. The prophet stood to rise. Then his legs gave unto him and he staggered. He reached out to grab hold of something and almost fell to the ground. Abu Bakr recognized the signs and ran to support his friend. He carefully leaned the prophet against the wall, covered him with a blanket, and placed a leather pillow behind his head. The prophet was both sweating and shivering as the revelation poured into his heart. 
His eyes were half-closed. His breathing was deep and labored as if each intake pained him. Aisha's parents looked frightened. Would the revelation condemn their daughter? Aisha, however, was not worried at all. She knew she was innocent. In fact, Aisha felt she was too inconsequential to warrant any revelation. If Allah revealed anything about her situation, she figured it would be a general condemnation of slander and gossip. The Prophet's eyes popped open and with Abu Bakr's help, he got to his feet. Beads of sweat covered his face. Rejoice, Aisha, he said smiling. Allah has revealed your innocence. Aisha did not rejoice and she did not smile. May Allah be praised and may you all be blamed, she responded. The Prophet went to the masjid and called a meeting. When the people gathered, he recited the verses that were sent to him. Indeed, those who came with falsehood are a group among you. Do not think it bad for you, rather it is good for you. For every person among them is what he has earned from the sin, and he took upon himself the greater portion thereof, for him is a great punishment. Why, when you heard it, did not the believing men and the believing women think good of one another and say, This is an obvious falsehood? Why do they not produce four witnesses? And when they do not produce the witnesses, then it is they in the sight of Allah who are the liars. And if it had not been for the favor of Allah upon you and his mercy in this world and the hereafter, you would have been touched for that in which you were involved by a great punishment. When you received it with your tongues and said with your mouths that of which you had no knowledge and thought it was insignificant while it was in the sight of Allah, tremendous. And why, when you heard it, did you not say, It is not for us to speak of this, exalted are you, this is a great slander.
Allah warns you against ever returning to the likes of this if you are believers. And Allah makes clear to you the verses and Allah is annoying and wise. The Prophet ordered the most guilty among them to receive the prescribed punishment. Hassan ibn Thabit, the poet, Mistah ibn Rathatha, the veteran, and Hamna bint Jash, the Prophet's sister-in-law, were each flogged 80 times. The main instigator behind the rumors, the chief of the hypocrites, Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Solul, was not punished at all. In fact, none of the known group of hypocrites were punished for their part in the scandal. According to most Muslim scholars, this was by design. Hassan ibn Thabit, Mistah ibn Othatha, and Hamna bint Jash were all devout Muslims. There was no doubt about their faith. They had made the mistake of spreading gossip and received the legislative punishment for their crime. This punishment cleared their spiritual record with the law. They did not have to worry about punishment in the next life, nor any further harm in this life for those deeds. The hypocrites, however, were not so lucky. The same verses that exonerated Aisha also foretells the punishment awaiting them in the next life. For every person among them is what he has earned from the sin, and he who took upon himself the greater portion thereof, for him is a great punishment. Abdullah ibn Obey and the other hypocrites would have to face Allah with this crime still on their records. Aisha's parents had suffered a great deal during the scandal. They had to maintain an air of dignity while enduring the rumors. After her exoneration, bitter feelings remained. Before the scandal, Abu Bakr used to support Mistah ibn Uthatha, who was a poor man and a distant relative. By Allah, he said after the revelation, I will never support Mistah with anything or help him in any way after what he said about my daughter and making us suffer as we did. In response, Allah sent another revelation. And let not the virtuous and wealthy among you swear not to give to their relatives and the needy and the immigrant for the cause of Allah, and let them pardon and overlook. Would you not like that Allah should forgive you? And Allah is forgiving and merciful. When Abu Bakr heard these verses, he resumed his support of Mistah, saying, By Allah, I want Allah to forgive me. I will never stop supporting him. Safwan ibn Mu'atal, the other victim of the slander, was angered by the rumors as well. After Aisha was exonerated, he attacked the poet Hassan ibn Thabit, striking him with the blunt side of his sword. Thabit ibn Qais, one of Hassan's tribesmen, retaliated and took Safwan captive. Thabit was transporting Safwan back to his tribe when another companion named Abdullah ibn Rawaha intercepted them. Abdullah ibn Rawaha insisted the matter be brought before the Prophet for judgment. Prophet Muhammad listened to both sides. On the one hand, he could understand Safwan's anger as his honor and reputation were tarnished by Hassan's poetry. Yet, he could not allow vigilante justice to prevail with tensions so fraught in the city and emotions still on edge. 
The Prophet encouraged Hassan to forgive Safwan for the blow. Ahsan, ya Hassan, he said, be good, good man, a soft play on Hassan's name. Hassan agreed and the Prophet gave him a piece of land and a Coptic slave girl as compensation. Epilogue The three companions punished for the slander continued to be steadfast followers of Prophet Muhammad. They lived otherwise noble and righteous lives. As mentioned before, Mistah continued to receive Abu Bakr's support. Hassan ibn Thabit continued to compose poetry, but now in support of Prophet Muhammad. His poems were invaluable in spreading the message of Islam among the Arabs. Hamna bint Josh eventually married the companion Talha ibn Ubaidullah, one of the ten promised paradise. She bore him two sons. Safwan ibn Mu'atal died many years later during the Muslim conquest of Armenia. He never married nor had any children. Abdullah ibn Ubay's position was further eroded after the scandal. Though still a leading figure among Banu Khazraj, he was now outed as a hypocrite and his own people lost respect for him. Hoping to avert any further strains, the Khazraj took it upon themselves to keep him in check. Even Omar had to acknowledge this was better than beheading him. When Abdullah ibn Ubay died a few years later, the Prophet agreed to pray upon him. Allah then revealed new verses forbidding the Prophet from ever praying for the hypocrites again. And do not pray over any of them who had died or stand at his grave. Indeed, they disbelieved in Allah and his messenger and died while they were defiantly disobedient. After Abdullah ibn Ubay's death, the group of hypocrites fizzled out. Most repented of their past deeds and no longer openly opposed Prophet Muhammad. As the Prophet turned his focus on spreading Islam outside Medina, the tribal lines among the Muslims faded. The Aus and the Khazraj forgot their previous rivalry and took pride in their role as Ansars. The tensions between Ansar and Muhajirun also disappeared as the Muslim population grew. When Prophet Muhammad died, both sides threw their support behind Abu Bakr without question. The story of the Ifq is a warning for us all. We must be careful about spreading gossip. We must avoid that human desire to indulge in drama and controversy. And we must remember the severe punishment Allah has prescribed for those who cannot resist. Okay, alhamdulillah, I hope you found that beneficial and entertaining and engaging and all that. Um, inshallah, we'll, we'll discuss a little bit about this episode, just a little bit, because I, I think I kind of gave you a lot of detail. So I really don't think I left much out. I've researched the story from at least four or five different sources, the original hadith. Uh, I have a several books here about the history of Islam, Tariqa Tabari, and everything I could find about it I already have. Also, my own notes from when I took um, an Islamic history class or a Sita class several years ago. So, I put in a lot 
of information about this. So I hope it wasn't too confusing. Hope you found it easy to follow. Now, I'm still doing my research for season four that I mean, it's still on plan, except for the fact, you know, I was delayed by three weeks, three weeks because my computer broke down because I had to give a chutbah, which I already mentioned already. But still, season four is coming along. I'm still doing the research. I hope to have it out sometime early next year. I, I don't know, brothers and sisters. I, I can only do what I can, but pray for me and make it, and I pray that Allah makes it easy for me. Now, coincidentally, coincidentally, my preparation for this podcast, the slander against Aisha, it coincided with the whole fiasco surrounding Nukman Ali Khan. And it is kind of amazing some of the um, some of the parallels between these two issues. I just want to say this, brothers and sisters, be very, very careful about getting involved with that mess. My advice to you, my advice to myself as well, is probably best just to leave that stuff alone, not say anything because, I mean, a lot of people, a lot of people are going to have to explain themselves to Allah in the next life. People are saying a whole lot of bad things. A lot of bad stuff is being thrown around. A lot of mud is being thrown around. It is really sad all around, but after hearing in studying and researching the story of the if of the scandal against Aisha or the slander against Aisha about the punishment, both in this life and the next, for those who spread slander about how Allah condemned it in the Quran and how Prophet Muhammad advised his people, advised us basically to stay away from it in the hadith and in this in his lifetime. It's just not worth it. I mean, it is just not worth getting involved in that mess. Really what it is, um, as I mentioned in the podcast, in the episode, people have a desire to get involved in that kind of drama. And we all have that desire. Sometimes, I mean, let's face it, we all fall into it every now and then. But be careful about it. And if you find yourself getting into that mess, get out of it and make tawbah and repent to Allah and ask him for forgiveness. So, this episode of the IFK, it was a request from a brother who is a sponsor for this episode. And I do make extra effort for someone who is a sponsor of this podcast. So if there is a particular story you want to hear, I mean, become a sponsor, <laughs> become a sponsor, make a suggestion and inshallah, it might take me six months like this one did, but I'll get around to it eventually. The brother asked for this one a long time ago. Um, alhamdulillah, I finally, I finally got around to it. It's just, uh, it's busy here. But alhamdulillah, I finally got around to it. So same thing for you. If you think that you want me to tackle a specific episode, become a sponsor. You know, I'll, I'll give you more, definitely much more uh, credence if you are a sponsor than if you're some random guy who says, do an episode on this and do an episode on that. It's, I mean... I have my own plan of how I want the show to go. I'm not going to um, move mountains if you're not a sponsor. Sorry, just, you know, just reality. But anyway, there's another thing also. Um, still, people are asking for season one, which I did take down from the mainstream. Um, season one is in the archives. So if you want if you want to listen to season one, which is really the history of the stories in the Quran, there's several stories in the Quran, um, uh, the Al-Qarnain, uh, Prophet Noah, um, Many stories, Mary, uh, Prophet Jesus, salam, many, many stories in the Quran. Um, and so I basically just did history about those different stories. So 
If you think you want to listen to that, once again, become a sponsor. It's very easy to do. Only $1, really. To get access to the archives, $1, a monthly donation of $1, one American buck. You will get the link to the archive. You can listen to episode or season one of the Islamic History Podcast, plus a whole bunch of other stuff beyond Islamic history that I have on there. So you're getting quite a lot for one one buck. So if you can, please, inshallah, consider making a donation or becoming a sponsor. You can do so at uh, patreon.com slash Islamic history. Now, the show notes for this episode will be available at islamiclearningmaterials.com slash if, that is I-F-E. Okay, when you go to the show notes, I encourage you to join the Islamic History Podcast Facebook group so you can receive notifications. And I may also post some extra stuff up there every now and then. So uh, you never know. Uh, I'm trying to get more involved with my social media um, presence. So I'll try to get better with that. You can also follow me on other social media platforms like Instagram and Twitter. That's pretty much all I do. really do Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. I don't really do much of the other stuff. Of course, there's a link to become a sponsor. And the aforementioned khutbah that held me back for one week as I prepared for it. That will also be available on the show notes page. It's available for free if you feel like listening to it. Um, you can download that khutbah. And the khutbah was called Family and Faith. And in this khutbah, I discussed the um, well, the connection between family and faith. And some of the tafsir of uh, Surah Tahrim, chapter 66 of the Quran, and also made a few references to some to uh, this episode as well, to this story about the ifk as well, uh, which you can, you'll, you'll hear it when you listen to it, inshallah. So we're going to close out, brothers and sisters. I'm still working on the, um, on season four. Hopefully I have that to you soon, inshallah. So just pray for me that Allah makes it easy. So I'm going to close out with a clip from yesterday's khutbah. And if you want to hear the whole thing, just go check out the show notes page, islamiclearningmaterials.com slash ifk, I-F-K. And with that, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. In Surah Tahrim, chapter 66 of the Quran, Allah discusses another incident where someone did something foolish out of love and jealousy as well. And today we're going to discuss Surah Tahrim. We're going to look at the first six verses of Surah Tahrim. The first five verses actually discuss this incident. We're going to look at the Asbabun Nuzul, the reason for the revelation of this verse, of this of these verses. And then we'll look at the stories and the lessons we can get out of the surah in the second half of the khutbah, inshallah. In Surah Tahrim, it begins with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala asking Prophet Muhammad. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, a question. Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Ya ayyuha nabiyyu lima tuharrimu ma ahallallahu laka tabtaghi maradata azwajik. Wallahu ghafoorur rahim. O Prophet, why do you forbid yourself from something Allah has made permissible for you? You are seeking the approval of your wives, and Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. Now the Prophet, you know he had multiple wives. He tried his best to be as balanced with the time that he spent among his wives. One of his wives was, as you mentioned, Zainab bint Jash. And Zainab used to give the Prophet, when he came to visit her, a honey-based drink. And he liked the drink, and over time, the time that he was spending with Zainab began to be a little bit more imbalanced. And the other wives noticed 
particularly Aisha as well as Hafsa. Aisha, the daughter of Abu Bakr, and Hafsa, the daughter of Omar ibn Khattab, And so Hafsa and Aisha, they came up with a scheme, a plan. They came up with an idea to lead the Prophet to believe the honey drink that he was getting from Zainab caused his breath to smell bad. And that was their whole plan. And hopefully that would bring the Prophet to have a little bit more balance. And so they went forward with their plan. And when the Prophet came to visit Hafsa and Aisha individually, they both mentioned that his breath smelled strange. And they led him, they didn't lie about it, they led him to believe that the honey was the cause of the bad smelling breath, which didn't exist in the first place. Now the Prophet was very fastidious, very concerned about his hygiene. And this is something that carries on to Islam even through now. 